You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Spotlight podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. Hi, my name is Salma Khalid, and I'm a rheumatology consultant at Winchester. Thanks very much for joining me in today's podcast, which is part of the e-learning module on antiphospholipid syndrome. I'm joined by Professor Anissa Rahman, who is a consultant rheumatologist at UCLH and an expert in the field of antiphospholipid syndrome. Hi, Professor. Hi, Salama. Nice to talk to you today. Thank you very much for joining us today, and I'm very excited about this podcast. I was thinking we can start off with discussing what is APS? Yeah, the antiphospholipid syndrome is one of the youngest or newest diseases in rheumatology really first described in the 1980s, particularly by Graham Hughes and his colleagues. So antiphospholipid syndrome is an autoimmune rheumatic disease, although it's an overlap between rheumatology, hematology and obstetrics. And I say it's an autoimmune rheumatic disease because it is caused by autoantibodies, which historically have been called antiphospholipid antibodies, although actually they bind proteins associated with phospholipids. So You've got these antibodies and they cause symptoms. What symptoms do they cause? Classically, thrombosis, vascular thrombosis, either venous or arterial, and pregnancy morbidity, which is very strictly defined. So the patients with APS have the positive test for antibodies and either vascular thrombosis or pregnancy morbidity or both. So that is how the disease is defined. And there are classification criteria which say that in order to diagnose a person with APS for the purpose of research studies, they must test positive in at least one of the tests and must be persistently positive, and they must have a clinical feature, either thrombosis or a specific pregnancy morbidity or both. So that is what the disease actually is by definition. And would you be able to explain the lab tests for APS? I always find them very confusing. I'm very glad to do that because it does lead to a lot of confusion. So the first thing to say is what we're testing for here is antibodies in the bloodstream, which interact with phospholipid binding proteins in general, of which the main one is beta-2 glycoprotein 1. So it's important to remember beta-2 glycoprotein 1. This is a glycoprotein which every single one of us has. We all have it, about 200 micrograms per mil in um, in the serum. So we all have this. And usually it doesn't cause any problems at all. But in some people, there are antibodies to beta-2 glycoprotein. And those antibodies can cause the antiphospholipid syndrome. Now, in the small print, there are a few people who have antibodies to other proteins, but it's mainly anti-beta-2 glycoprotein 1. So what I'd like you to imagine is that in the causation of this disease, the antibodies are circulating around, They're binding to beta-2 glycoprotein 1 phospholipid complexes, and that then leads to the clinical features of the disease. So how then do we detect antibodies like that in the laboratory? And there are more than one way to do it. There are more than one test for it. The original test, the standard test, was called the anti-cardiolipin test. Cardiolipin is a phospholipid. You can purify it reasonably easily, and you can put it on a plate to see if there are antibodies that bind to it. So the anti-cardiolipin test is a test to see if antibodies from the patient's blood bind to cardiolipin on a plastic plate. 
And that means you can quantify it. And many of the people listening to this podcast will have requested this test and it will come back as a number, say 20 GPLE or 50 GPLE or something like that. There are two different types or flavours of antibody, IgG and IgM. So you can have IgG anticardiolipin, IgM anticardiolipin. So that's the first type of antibody, anticardiolipin. You can also test for binding to beta-2 glycoprotein 1 directly. And that means you put the beta-2 glycoprotein 1 on the plate and see if antibodies bind to that. And that's also IgG or IgM. So you can test for binding to anticardiolipin and you get a number. It could be high, medium or low. You can test for antibodies to beta to glycoprotein 1. That will also give you a number. Could be high, could be medium, could be low. So those are two different tests. Now, the third test is called the lupus anticoagulant test. And honestly, I think this is one of the worst named tests in the whole history of medicine. And it confuses doctors and it confuses patients as well. So let me explain why. The lupus anticoagulant test is not a test for lupus. So many people... I found to have a lupus anticoagulant test. They Google it and they think they've got lupus and they're really, really horrid. It is not a test for lupus. Most people who are positive in that test don't have lupus. And most people who have lupus are not positive for that test. It's called the lupus anticoagulant test because it was initially discovered in patients with lupus. That's the only reason. Now, it's called the lupus anticoagulants test. And if you remember at the beginning, I said that this disease causes clots. It's a pro-coagulant disease. So what's going on here? How come we are testing for antibodies which cause clots using an anticoagulant test? It doesn't seem to make any sense, does it? And the reason is that these antibodies, these naughty antibodies, these bad actors which are causing the disease, change what they do depending on the environment they're in. So they mess about with clotting, they alter clotting. But how they alter clotting depends on the environment. So these same antibodies in a test tube of blood will stop the blood from clotting. They will be anticoagulant. Whereas in the body, under different stimuli, they will promote clotting. So the lupus anticoagulant test tests whether these bad actors, these antibodies are present in the blood, messing about with clotting. And how do you do it? So what you have is the patient's blood, you put it in a tube and you add a sort of snake venom to it to um, stimulate clotting. And the clotting time is long, it's longer. So that's why it's an anticoagulant effect. That's the first thing. So that shows you that something is wrong. The next part of the test is that you mix the patient's blood with a healthy person's blood. And if that corrects the problem, if it clots normally now, then the problem is probably a deficiency of some clotting factor. It's not a lupus anticoagulant effect. But if that doesn't correct the problem, then you do the third part of the test. You add lots and lots of phospholipids. You, you drown the whole system in phospholipids. That takes out all the antibodies and corrects the problem. So a lupus anticoagulant test is positive or negative. It's not quantifiable. It's either positive or negative. And it's positive if the patient's blood is slow to clot in a test tube, it can't be corrected by adding healthy person's blood, but it can be corrected by adding extra phospholipid. So just to summarise, there are three tests used routinely. The anticardiolipin test, the anti-beta-2 glycoprotein 1 test, and the lupus anticoagulant test. The first two can be quantified. They give you a number. The last one is only positive or negative. Finally, an individual patient can be positive in one test, two tests, or all three tests. 
The more tests are positive, the worse the scenario. Being triple positive gives you a higher risk of clots. So that's the story of the lab tests for antiphospholipid syndrome. Thank you. That was very comprehensive. And I think I might understand it for the first time. I do have a question about the cardiolipin antibodies. Um, is one or the other, the IgG or IgM, more important in the scenario? Yeah, so data suggests that two things are true. Number one, the higher the level, the higher the risk. So if you have a patient with a level of greater than 100, that patient is going to have a higher risk than somebody who's got a level of, say, 25. Secondly, people with IgG seem to be at higher risk than those with IgM. So IgG worse than IgM, higher levels worse than lower levels. And actually, the point of the levels is important because many people have uh, low positive levels, which you don't quite know what they mean. So mm -hmm. your laboratory will say the test is positive if it's above the upper limit of normal. In the standard definition of antiphospholipid syndrome, the classification criteria, they specify that a level over 40 of IgG or IgM anticardiolipin is enough to support the diagnosis of antiphospholipid syndrome. But what if your patient has a level over 20, which is above the upper limit of normal for your laboratory, but below 40? What are you going to say then? Is that positive or is it not positive? It's a tricky situation when you have those. So higher levels are more important. IgG, more important than IgM, also applies to anti-beta 2 gop one Great. Thank you very much. Now, I guess my next question is, how do we prevent thrombosis, further thrombosis in a patient who has thrombotic APS? OK, so this is an important question. Here's a patient then who has the positive test. And may I stress again that you have to test it at least twice under the classification criteria. There are some people who are transiently positive, only positive once, maybe because they've had an infection or something, then it all goes away. People with the syndrome are persistently positive. So you've got a person who's persistently positive and who's had a thrombosis. Maybe it's a DVT, maybe it's a pulmonary embolus, maybe it's a stroke. So they've had it and you know that they're at a higher risk for a further thrombosis. The only evidence-based treatment is anticoagulation. Steroids don't work. Rituximab isn't known to work. No DMARDs are known to work. None of these have any place in the standard treatment of the antiphospholipid syndrome, making it quite unusual as an autoimmune rheumatic disease. The only evidence-based treatment which stops further clots is anticoagulation, which is usually done with warfarin. Some people require heparin. There are some people on the direct oral anticoagulants, which we may come on to later in this podcast because they're controversial. So if you have a person with confirmed antiphospholipid syndrome, that person, the evidence says, should be on long term anticoagulation, which can be difficult because typically it's quite hard to control the INR in those patients. It can vary sometimes up and down, which puts you at risk of things like bleeding. But long-term anticoagulation with the standard monitoring is how you manage those patients. Great, thank you. Um, and now I'm going to ask a question. I think that everybody gets quite anxious, scared when they're treating. How do you manage pregnancy in APS? So there's two types of thing here. Firstly, there are the people with pure thrombotic APS. So they've had clots. 
but their pregnancy has been absolutely fine. They don't have a problem in pregnancy. There are some people like that. The main thing for those people is to remember that heparin should be used in pregnancy, not warfarin, because warfarin is teratogenic. So people should be switched from warfarin to heparin as soon as they know that they're pregnant. That's very, very important for anybody on warfarin for any reason at all. Okay? Mm -hmm. So that would happen even if the person had all normal pregnancies always. But there are people who are known to have pregnancy problems. So what sort of pregnancy problems am I talking about? Well, clearly miscarriages. Now, the definition of antiphospholipid syndrome is pretty strict if you look at the paper. Um, to diagnose it, to classify a patient with it, a person must have at least three successive early trimester pregnancies, because remember, early trimester pregnancies are common anyway, might not have anything to do with the antibodies, or one late uh, miscarriage or stillbirth, or they might have things which didn't actually lead to the loss of the baby, uh, but problems later in pregnancy. Okay, So pregnancy problems may have occurred. If you know your patient with antiphospholipid syndrome has difficulties in pregnancy, the standard evidence-based management is heparin plus aspirin. So I already said we have to change everybody from warfarin to heparin if they're on it at the time of knowing that they're pregnant. And also aspirin, 150 milligrams through pregnancy. And the evidence says this is very, very good at increasing the live birth rate. So heparin plus aspirin through pregnancy. If there's a, this is a person who is on anticoagulation anyway, because they had clots, clearly they're going to have to continue anticoagulation after the pregnancy. But even if they're not that person, many people would continue the heparin for a period after giving birth because, of course, the postpartum period is a high risk for thrombosis anyway. So heparin and aspirin, the take-home message. Great, thank you. Is there any consensus on primary prevention of thrombosis in APL-positive patients? So, so this comes up a lot. And this comes a lot, a lot particularly in lupus clinics, where it's standard to test these uh, when the patient is diagnosed, because 25 to 30% of patients with lupus will be positive, but not all of them will develop the syndrome. So there you are then, and you've got a patient that never had a thrombosis, they've either never been pregnant, all their pregnancies have been normal, or they're a man, and uh, they're positive for the blood test. So what does that mean? Is this person going to have a clot? Are they not going to have a clot? Will they be able to have babies? How are you going to work it out? Firstly, you can do as much as you can to calculate the risk. So you do all three of the tests, the anticoagulant, anti-PTC and lupus anticoagulant. If they're triple positive, for example, that puts them in a much more high risk group. You also look at any other risk factors that they may have. Are they a heavy smoker? Do they have factor five Leiden? Are there other reasons to think that that person might get a clot? So you factor in all the possible risk factors before you decide what to do. Now, assuming that a person just has a single positive or a low positive or something, they don't need treatment. There is no evidence for primary prevention in that person, not even with aspirin. But the ULAR guidelines, which have been published more recently, would support the use of aspirin in people who are in a high risk group. So, for example, people who are triple positive, anti-BT2 positive, anti-cardiolipin positive, lupus anticoagulant positive. So not for everybody. You don't need drugs for everybody. But in specific groups where you think there's a higher risk, such as triple positive patients, aspirin could be useful. And an important thing to remember is the simple things, not drug things. If your patient has antiphospholipid antibodies, encourage them not to smoke. 
not to use the combined oral contraceptive. Maybe on an airplane flight, try and get a bulkhead seat and walk around, maybe wear stockings. There are simple things which don't involve drugs, which people can do to reduce their risk of clots. Great. Thank you very much. Now, let's talk about catastrophic APS. The catastrophic APS is exactly what it sounds like. It's a catastrophe, but it's very rare. So the actual prevalence of APS all told is probably about one in 2,000, one in 2,000 people. And of those, only 1% have catastrophic APS. So we're talking about one in 200,000 people. It's a rare thing, but most doctors will remember the cases of APS because they're so dramatic and worrying and difficult and so on. So there's a definition of catastrophic APS. And basically, it means that there have to be vascular events causing problems in several different organs at the same time, occurring rapidly over a period of about a week or so. So, you know, you're thinking about somebody who's getting gangrene of the toes and the fingers. Maybe they've got a pulmonary embolus as well. Their kidney starts not to work because they've got a renal thrombosis. So several different things happening at the same time. And often these patients are very ill. They may be on ITU and they have antiphospholipid antibodies in their blood. Often it's in a person who already is known to have antiphospholipid antibodies, but it can be the first presentation. Somebody can start with catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome. So the picture is of a very sick person who is having multiple problems. They may have gangrenous black digits, pulmonary embolus, kidney problems, really sick person with antiphospholipid antibodies. That is what catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome is. Historically, there had been a very high mortality rate in, in catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome. It's so rare that you can't really do trials, clinical trials. But Ricard Severa in Barcelona has created a CAPS registry where they collect data on patients from CAPS from all over the world. And that's our best source of information about how things turn out and what to do. And the message really is get as many people involved as possible. Work with your hematologist, maybe your ITU team, all the specialist teams, maybe the vascular surgeons and treat them with as much as you can. So these are people who do get high doses of steroids. Remember I told you steroids and immunosuppressants not usually useful. Steroids, um, anticoagulants, heparin usually, plasma exchange or immunoglobulins, sometimes rituximab. So all of these things in combination use. It's combination therapy, it's a lots of therapy and try and get this patient through the illness. Now, I guess my next question is about seronegative APS. Does it really exist? So this is so controversial and it has created lots of arguments in the field over the years between people. Um, so let me tell you the philosophy of it. Seronegative APS. Well, we're all familiar with the idea of seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. Nobody worries about that. You can have rheumatoid arthritis without rheumatoid factor and anti-CCP. We're reasonably OK with seronegative lupus even, although almost everybody has positive ANA. There are a few people who've got negative ANA and have got lupus. So people are OK with this. So can you have seronegative APS? The patient has APS and yet they're negative in all the tests. Some people say if you can have seronegative rheumatoid and you can have seronegative lupus, why not? Why can't you have seronegative APS? And other people say we are absolutely offended by that idea. It just can't be true. Do you know why it can't be true? Because the definition says you have to have positive antibodies. So look at the definition. Look at the classification criteria. It's all there in black and white. You have to have the antibodies. So how can you tell us 
they can have the disease without the antibodies. Plus, you guys who have been working on it keep telling us that the antibodies cause the disease. So how then do you have the disease without the antibodies? So that's the argument against. So uh, particularly Graham Hughes and Munther come out to promote this idea because they were seeing patients who looked exactly like antiphospholipid antibody patients. Not only did they have maybe the recurrent thrombosis, but they also had features like heart valve abnormalities, lividoreticularis rash, migraines, things which are not in the criteria, but we know they frequently occur in these patients. So they look a lot like antiphospholipid syndrome patients, yet they're always negative in the tests. That was the idea of seronegative antiphospholipid syndrome. And as I've said, some people are very much against the idea. Some people are pro the idea. I think the argument has moved on now. And it's kind of a sterile argument. From the point of view of the patient, you might say, does it really matter? If somebody's having recurrent thrombosis all the time, they're probably going to be on long-term anticoagulation anyway, whether you diagnose it or not. So the patient, it may not affect the diagnosis of the patient. I believe that in a small minority of patients, it's true. I've never diagnosed it myself. I've never personally diagnosed it. I think it's quite rare, but I think it can happen. And I think it can happen because our tests are not perfect. So the anti-beta-2-glycoprotein one test was invented after the others. So logically speaking, there was a time where there were people who had APS and we didn't know because we didn't have the anti-beta-2-GP1 test. So I think there are other antibodies not detected by our current tests, but they may be detected by new tests. And my group has done some work on that. So I think there are some antibodies not picked up by the current tests, which are causing the disease. And those are the patients who have what are called seronegative APS. They're not really seronegative. We just can't see the antibodies at the moment. Actually, the new terminology is non-criteria APS. In other words, they don't fulfill the criteria exactly but they have APS anyway, which is kind of a less emotive term, if you like. So non-criteria APS, I think, exists. Seronegative APS, I think, probably exists, but only in a very small minority of patients. That would be my view. Not everybody would agree with me, uh, but that's what I think. That's really interesting. Thank you very much for that. So we have a little bit more time, and I was wondering if you could talk more about DOACs in antiphospholipid syndrome. Yes, it's good to end with DOACs because this has been quite a controversial issue in recent years. So DOACs, the direct oral anticoagulants, things like rivaroxaban and apixaban in particular. So how are they different from warfarin? So warfarin and other vitamin K antagonists, they target multiple different clotting factors, not just one clotting factor. The DOACs typically target just one clotting factor. So rivaroxaban targets factor 10. Is that good? Well, in many scenarios, such as atrial fibrillation, these are taking over from warfarin because they're more predictable. They have fewer side effects, fewer interactions, and you don't have to keep measuring the INR. Somebody on rivaroxaban has a stable level of anticoagulation, so you don't have to keep checking the INR. So there are advantages to the DOAX. And in many scenarios, they have taken over or are taking over from warfarin. So you can see why APS specialists were really excited and thought this would be a big advance in the treatment of APS. Tricky thing is, there was no direct trial data in APS, and there might be reasons to think that it wouldn't work as well in APS. So, for example, some APS patients have anti-factor 10. So if they have anti-factor 10 and you put in a factor 10 inhibitor, what's going to happen? Can we predict the result? 
So it was important to actually do trials of DOAX in APS patients to see if that was the right thing to do. And there have been several trials, and on balance, the evidence is against DOAX in APS. There was one trial in the UK called the RAP study, and that looked at patients who were a broad range, both the low risk and the high risk triple positive type of patients. In that study, Rivaroxaban was as good as warfarin, but actually nobody had any clots in either arm of the study. There was about 55 patients in each arm. So that study said, yep, Rivaroxaban could be just as good, but there wasn't really a clinical endpoint. But a study in Italy called the TRAP study reached a different conclusion. Now, the thing with that study is that they only had the high risk patients, the triple positive patients, and the study had to be stopped early because the Rivaroxaban group were doing so much worse than the warfarin group. They had more bad outcomes. So they stopped it and said, we can't in all conscience carry on giving Rivaroxaban to these people. So there were two uh, different results, but the patients in the studies were really different. So one high risk patients only, one wasn't high risk patients only. Subsequently, there have been other studies, including one from Spain, which included both high risk and low risk, both arterial and venous. And on balance, to cut a long story short, it could not be proved that rivaroxaban was non-inferior. So that's how they expressed the results. Rivaroxaban may be non-inferior, may be worse than warfarin. We can't exclude that possibility. On that basis, the European Medicines Authority and the MHRA here does not currently recommend DOAX for cases of APS, particularly not for high-risk patients or patients with arterial thrombosis. So some people are already on DOAX and may continue on them, particularly if they're in a low-risk group, but people aren't generally being started on DOAX with APS at the moment. There is a new study called the RISAP study, which is being done in people with arterial thrombosis using higher doses of rivaroxaban, but it hasn't reported yet. So take home message. Currently, the evidence is against DOAX in APS, but new studies are being done and it may be OK in people with the lower risk profile who aren't triple positive, have had only venous thrombosis. Thank you so much, Professor Raman, for joining us today. I really enjoyed the talk. It was a great talk. And I think I've learned a lot today. Thank you, Salama. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Spotlight, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.